0: You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I am your host, Stuart Goodnick, and joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Ken McLeod, founder and director of unfetteredmind.org, a website offering resources on practical Buddhism. Ken trained in the Tibetan Buddha, Dharma, translated for his teacher, and has written books that translate and comment on Tibetan texts. His works include a track with a trackless path, reflections on Silver River, an arrow to the heart, and wake up to your life.
1: We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD of Sacred Broke Arias called Anima Sacra, Spiritual Breath, Spiritual Soul, performed by countertenor Jakob Yosef Arlinsky and the ensemble Il Pomodoro, directed by Mac- Maxim. Emelianchev. This aria, unusual in its tone for sacred Baroque music, is by Francesco Durante.
0: director of Taiyu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here today, especially with our good friend Ken McLeod. So this week on the show, we converse in the studio with Ken McLeod, founder and director of unfetteredmind.org, a website offering resources on practical Buddhism. Kin trained in the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, translated for his teacher, Kala Rinpoche, and has written books that translate and comment on Tibetan texts. His books include A Trackless Path, Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and Wake Up to Your Life. Kin's work focuses upon making the Buddha's teachings relevant and accessible to Western practitioners. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist.
2: Thank you very much. It's good to be with both of you again.
0: Well, it's great to have you. And um, I happen (coughs) to know that you have
1: just returned from a trip to both France and Croatia. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that you have been visiting uh, um, fellow practitioners in those locations. Just wondering if there's any reflections you have on your trip, any interesting topics that came up in your discussion with your uh, Dharma friends that, that sort of leaped to mind at first. I'm sure there were many discussions and many interesting discussions, but uh, if there's anything that, that uh, leaps to the fore,
2: um, we'd love to hear it well you you 're right I had a lot of uh, very interesting conversations. Uh, one of them was uh, an extended oh gosh, probably three or four hours with uh, matthew o 'Connell, who mm. has a podcast called The Imperfect Buddhist. Mm. And uh, I've talked with him before, but this time uh, Hokai Sobo, uh, and I met with him, and so we just had this very, very long conversation about a lot of aspects of how Buddhism is taking shape in the West and uh, ideas about that uh I, I don't i don't even know where to start but uh, <laughs> and the first uh, part of that has just been released uh it's up on us on on the website
1: Ah, well maybe uh after we when Stuart posts this show, we can uh, uh, put a link on yeah. our on our page here.
2: I also had uh, some long conversations with uh, Stephen Batchelor and his wife Martine. I spent a couple of days with them uh, walking through the th- French countryside. It was very nice. That sounds delightful, yeah. especially this time of year. Yeah. And uh, then I met with, uh, in Paris, I met with an old friend of mine, I did the second, my second three year retreat with. Uh, oh. a Daniel Boschro is is not well known at all, maybe mm-hmm. somewhat in Europe, uh, but uh, he and I go back uh, to the 1980 or so, mm-hmm. and uh, he he lives quietly and translates for a few lamas uh, now and then, uh, but uh, like like many of us at this stage of our lives. We find the way that Buddhism is evolving very different from the way it was when uh, in the West when we, we first started. It has a very different feel and different orientation.
0: I mean, I'm curious if, if um, maybe we can just start with uh, how you see the distinction. Like what 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 was it for you when you were starting out in your training, and uh, what do you see as the, uh, the strongest contrast with today?
2: Well there are several uh I, I this the first one is that uh, because there were so few resources in our uh, when we started out in the late sixties early seventies uh a lot of us ended up going having to go to india or and, and other people went to Sri Lanka or the Southeast Asia or Japan or what have you and uh most people I think in my generation were seeking some form of mystical practice we were uh, leaving the mainstream religions here in uh, in the West because we could not get practice instruction we we, they had all of these different ideas about how things were but there was no methodology Hmm. very difficult to find and so certainly for me that was the primary thing I was looking for was a methodology and, of course, in Tibetan Buddhism, I found that in spades. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different techniques. Um, and and very few of us, I would say, were looking to Buddhism as a way to improve our lives. Uh, there may have been some, but I don't recall. Uh, so, So you're saying that there
1: was already some kind of nascent grasping of the goal of of something beyond um, what you found on offer whatever that whatever was on offer in western spiritual traditions is that is that what I'm hearing Sir, I
2: I, I didn't follow your question
1: so um, so already at that time was there did you apprehend that the mystical was absent in what you saw on offer in Western traditions and looked for that in the East? Or, or, was, or was the understanding, because you just, word, you just used the word mystical or mystic, um, uh, or was that a later understanding that developed as you
2: developed in, in practice? In my case, it was definitely present right from the beginning. I had read a number of Christian theologians uh, and had uh, acquaintance with the idea of mystical Insight uh, or knowledge, as we would describe it, it was clear to me that uh, what Suzuki Roshi, uh, not Suzuki Roshi, but uh, D.T. Suzuki was writing about was mysticism. Alexander David Neal's book was with magicians and mystics and magicians in Tibet. It was quite explicit. Uh, So there's, uh, I I definitely was seeking that. A lot of people in my generation were disillusioned with the with uh, the new left and uh, its failure to bring about any substantial um, change in society and so uh, rather than try to foment revolution which just wasn 't going to happen, uh, they decided to work internally and so they were seeking something a deeper um, relationship with life or whatever, and I think that has mystical qualities to it. Uh, and then, fast forward to the present age, probably most people come into Buddhism now through the influence of mindfulness and the whole Theravadan tradition that uh, with the idea that uh, it's going to help them with their lives in some mm-hmm. way. and. From there, some people evolve into a, you know, they discover possibilities that they didn't know were there through that uh, pursuit.
1: Well that's, well, that's interesting to me because because, my sense of a lot of pe- young people today, uh, and I see this through the bookstore that it's, you yes. know, where I have a lot of uh, contact with the public, uh, there are a lot of people without... Anything like the religious background that I had growing up in the 50s and 60s, and and they have, you, you know, you just mentioned that that you had already encountered the idea of mysticism through Christian writings as well as other writings, <laughs> and um, but I'm not sure that um, I suspect that a lot of uh, kids growing up in the West today don't get even that much sense of the possibility of something that that you're calling the
2: mystical. I think you're quite right. We, uh, I think I can say, usually here, but I can use I just to be safe. Uh, we, I knew what I was missing. I knew what wasn't present or wasn't accessible to me in, in reference to Stuart's comment. Uh, I'm not sure that the mystical was missing, but it wasn't very accessible. So, I just want to finish yes, the please. point and then but uh but we had we had been brought up in you know, protestant uh faith in in my case, and sometimes Catholic for others sometimes jewish but there and there was a strong you know generally the people had some religious training uh there was still church was still an important part of life for
1: mm-hmm. uh
2: the majority of people, even you know nice white. Bourgeois boys like me and me, but as what you're referring to is that uh, people growing up uh, in later generations didn't even have that religious background, right? Uh, and and, uh, and sometimes they're they're quite um, they, they don't know the Bible and the founding myths of our culture which I, I think is, an, is another very important topic I wanted to touch on. Uh, because uh, it, it's as if the, what Western society is based on, which is very much uh, the Judeo-Christian or the Christian tradition, um, that common knowledge is, is now not available to anyone.
0: Stuart. Yeah, so I, I want to go back to the comment you made about when you, when we fast forward today that it's not clear that yeah, the majority of people who enter into Buddhism are entering in through some, you know, improvement kind of modality, and some small number of them um, may find or go on or, or develop a taste for what you're calling the mystical. And I guess the question I have is, you know, in your day, uh, just because of the availability of resources, it wasn't many people who would go off and really immerse themselves in the Buddhist tradition. There were some people who would. Um, I guess I'm wondering if the number of people who actually go or or yearn for something beyond improvement or something beyond, uh, let us call it, Protestantism or society or, you know, just social contact um, is... always going to be a relatively small number, and that uh, today, although the catchment of Buddhist practitioners may be larger, the uh, number of esoteric Buddhist practitioners may be more or less the same as it ever was.
2: I think that's probably the case. It's just that uh, in my generation, it was... Primarily those people, and there weren't a, there weren't a lot of us, as you right. as you point out. Now there are many many more, but the proportion that are interested in the same kind of thing is probably not much greater.
0: So, so does that mean that uh, let's say Buddhists, uh, Buddhist practitioners of your generation, who you know have had that experience, uh, find it a little, in some ways, disorienting to see? Uh, uh... modern buddhists who don't bear any resemblance whatsoever to what what a western buddhist was um let's say uh... forty or fifty years ago and now they bear more relationship to what you might have called a protestant uh, uh, <laughs> forty or fifty years ago than they do to a uh... uh the kind of buddhist that was d- driven by or yearning for the kind of uh... uh... deepening that you're articulating
2: Yes, I, th- I think a lot of us do find it somewhat disorienting. Uh, it's like the ground has been moved, you know, out out from us, under us to uh, to another lo- location, and uh, and it it raises questions. I mean, uh, for instance, I, I wonder actually who I'm writing for. Uh, now, uh, I, I don't want to just be writing for my generation because we're all going to be dead in a few years uh and uh in this in the book that I'm currently working on I'm, I think I have an idea of how to make it interesting and relevant to people in in, in other generations um because in this a little bit of a diversion possibly but I think it might be important uh i and a number of other people like me We feel very, very fortunate because, and speaking just for me, I received two very different educations. I received a modern education in mathematics up to the graduate level, and then I uh, turned around and received a traditional education in esoteric Buddhism before the Tibetan tradition had been seriously impacted by its uh, contact with uh, modernism. And that's no longer the case. Uh, I, I was, if not the last generation, then maybe the second last generation for which that was possible. And uh, and I feel very fortunate because it, it's a bit like knowing two languages. Uh, when you know two langu- when you learn one language and then learn another your are the way you think is is very very significantly broadened and i i can i have an understanding at least i feel i have an understanding of religious and spiritual and mystical practice uh... which is much broader and uh... than what i, I would have gotten from just one one form of education and certainly my value in the business world when I was consulting was principally this, that I saw things from a different perspective.
0: Mm. It, it, we had a author on last week who had, has done a uh, biography of uh, Gurdjieff, uh, uh, a new kind of, he calls it Gurdjieff Reconsidered, a guy named Roger Lipsy. But more than just a biography sort of yeah. uh, uh,
1: recounting, for recontextualizing his work,
0: yeah, and there's two points I wanted to make from that. One is that uh, in this discussion we had, Gurdjieff was very clear about wanting to bring you know the uh, esoteric teaching of the of the East together with the sort of the Western way of approaching and solving problems, and that he thought that that was a that bringing those two things together was a very uh, positive or powerful thing to do. Which, uh, but but the other thing that um, came up, and I was just feeling about this when I reflect on the fourth way tradition, particularly as as you get closer to the fourth way tradition as kind of carried on by the Gurdjieff Foundation, is that organization is incredibly selective about you know you know there's all sorts of filters about who they let in um, and. And and what they have to
1: do before they get in, right?
0: Right. You know, that's like people are interviewed. They're basically there's this uh, determination to you know to what degree they're serious. And in a way, I in the past I've I've um, you know been more critical of that. But in the context of this discussion, it's just interesting to me that the you know the modern explosion of sort of mass spiritual availability uh, and communities practitioners um you know teachers who as uh gurdjieff might say is the soup of 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 the the chicken Um, Um, of the stone or of the stone (laughs) Uh, that
2: old nazar story yeah yes yeah
0: and um uh that that there's so much available that uh you know people can for a whole different set of reasons uh you know than uh, might have originally been the case um align themselves mentally with um a tradition like buddhism but the esoteric core still you know ultimately to connect with that esoteric core still requires a filtration process and a self-selection that is going to appeal to a smaller Number of those people, and in a sense, I guess you know, in answer to the question you raised, who are you writing for? It, it, it seems to me, in all the conversations we've had, that you would be writing for those people.
2: It, it, it is a fairly select audience, yes. Uh, and but to your point about selection, every tradition has its methods of selection. Sometimes they're acknowledged explicitly, sometimes they develop informally. Uh, in Rinzai-zen, in Japan, for instance, some monasteries, uh, when you applied to enter, uh, you had to wait at the gate for several days. And it was arranged, you know, that if you waited there, then somebody would bring you food. But generally, there were three or four days of pretty miserable time because nobody's speaking to you and this was a determination of whether you were serious or not. You, you, but you weren't you didn't necessarily starve to death in the process or anything like that. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition now Mundro uh, in a certain sense in the hundred thousand of this and hundred thousand of that has been used as a kind of selection process. I think that's very unfortunate uh, because those are important practices in their own right and they do very important things and to for them to become a Hoop which people have to jump through in order to be taken seriously Doesn't sit with me very well at all Uh, But that's basically what's happened. I mean it happened even in Tibet there is one yogin who used to go around and Take teachings from various teachers, and whenever he did, uh, they'd say do a hundred thousand prostrations because you want to see if it's serious, and uh, and he got to the point that he could do a hundred thousand prostrations in ten days. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he just got used to doing it. Yeah, uh, uh, but uh, that that wasn't really the point uh, of, of doing prostrations and taking refuge at all uh, to to prove your seriousness Uh, and that's a whole topic we could talk about what constitutes seriousness how do you uh, assess it and I I don't think there's any straightforward answers on that one Um, but now it seems uh, and you raised several uh, points that we could explore in uh, in what you just said for instance Uh, There's such a wealth of information available on the Internet, virtually every teaching of every tradition, that uh, people can familiarize themselves with all sorts of things uh, and, and become very, very knowledgeable but have no idea of, you know, what to do with it or how to apply it or, you know... What does it really mean? Because, as both of you know, it's one thing to read about thing, uh, some teaching. It's another to work with it so it becomes part of one experientially.
0: Right, and and to have a relationship with someone who's going to push you past the comfort zone. Ah, uh-huh. I didn't want
2: to tread on that. In yeah that territory
1: do <laughs> yeah <Okay>. of course <laughs> that's, uh, i'm afraid that's where we were trained so. <laughs> <laughs> right and
0: and but you know this we were uh, we were in a conversation this morning with um uh some folks uh more related to the fourth way and the sufi tradition and and this topic came up it, it just more in a reflection of like why is it so hard to um uh you know even if you've been trained into practice, why is it you know so hard to womp up the energy to uh uh sort of push oneself and I was thinking about uh some of the recent music lessons I've had where my my teacher is really pushing on um uh very subtle movements of the jaw and the tongue and the articulation of the sound, and then we'll be playing a piece of music and he'll stop and say no you know and he'll he'll do that constantly you can't get through uh, like a couple phrases before he says no you're not you know you're not moving your chin out or you're not, you know you're you're not lifting your tongue and it's like I want to throw my shakuhachi at him <laughs> uh, and um and in fact he wants that because he you know he often uh, you know elicits that you know to uh, you know to, uh for us to take that power and then you know send it back to him in the form of like you know, uh, energy going through you, uh, as expression. And I, and I just was realizing that that's so similar. And in, in when we talk about these subtle exercises of attention of our presence, our presence in our body, our presence in imagination, our awareness of what we're doing and why we're doing it. When you have someone who's willing to push you at that level of intimacy, um, that's a rare thing to have but it's a, it seems to me a necessary ingredient and not having that you can have all the teachings in the world but without that motive force i don't think those teachings can uh... you know spark anything
2: Well, you raise two things which i find uh, i've been pursuing myself uh, so th- this is quite interesting to talk about one is the analogy of mystical practice with uh, music or artistic practice. And the other is um, the fact that in, in either of those disciplines, when you step back, you're actually doing something that is quite unnatural. And so you ask, you know, why, why does it take so much energy? It takes a great deal of energy to train the body, and, and because in religious practice you're training the body, uh, even though that's overlooked in some traditions, and certainly in music you're training the body. But to train the body and the mind and 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 the emotional uh, connection with the world uh, so deeply that you can operate in a in a very very different way to create, in your case, the, the quality of sound in the music and in the case of mystical practice the quality of attention or awareness that that uh, is is meaningful uh, and so uh, yes it, i mean some people are able to push themselves that way but it requires it requires not only a very strong motivation it also requires the ability to make very subtle uh, distinctions, because you you then become the source of your own feedback. So the f- teacher actually serves two very different purposes. Yeah. One is the push, and some of that has to be in you as well, of course. And the other is the feedback, because you're not always able to tell when you're off, and um, and the teacher's telling you no. Now you as you said, you're pushing your chin out again because he can tell from the tone.
1: Well, would you, would you agree that the teacher is also, uh, in addition to the, to what you just pointed to, uh, offering the modeling as well? So Stuart's oh, definitely Stuart's yes. teacher yeah. is, is, is you know it's like you look at him compared to other players, and you just don't know how the hell he got to where he, his performance, uh, his capacity for subtlety, strength. Delicacy intermingled and interwoven in and, and such a way could ever have emerged, um, even with, you know, very uh, apparently seriously intentioned musicians. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, that modeling, it seems to me, is crucial.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that tends to happen, I think, both in music or in the arts and in mystical practice, is that people fall into the trap of trying to um, emulate their teacher. Right. Uh, Whereas, uh, and here I I find Uchiyama and his teacher, uh, Sagama Roshi, I think, Hmm. um, they use the analogy of flowers, saying, if if you're a violet, you can't bloom as a rose, and if you're a rose, you can't bloom as a violet. Uh, the main thing is you've got to figure out how to bloom. And then you find you may find out what you are. And so it sounds like Stuart's teacher has worked very, very hard to bring this out himself. And that's the, the appropriate modeling. Not to be like him, but... Sure. Uh, and, and, and that's a subtle point, which a lot of people overlook.
1: Well, it, it, it is. And, um, and that... Um, I mean, I... I uh, Every, everything's different. Everyone's different, yeah. but but the the ways in which um, I think people naturally seek to emulate that which they admire, um, how that uh, what I'm interested in is is how that gets transformed into this these other these other capacities that you that you're talking about because I I. I I completely agree with your description, and yet it's it 's a, it's a um, i mean it was a painful thing for me to be able to to realize just how deeply uh, true what you just said about being a different flower than
2: your teacher yeah. uh, was well at this stage, uh, the way that that transformation comes about is that you are willing to go into hell with no guarantee that you're going to come out the other side.
1: Goodness knows that my, that was something, a point that my teacher stressed. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
2: Yes, but, but most people hang on to the idea that if I do this, I will come out the other side. You have to let go of that as well.
1: I I, I really appreciate your saying that because because after my teacher died, I was definitely... Continuing to hang on to that idea as, it, as it as it continued to be more and more evident that it wasn't working for me But it, it really took took me <laughs> I mean, it's I'm i you know to be honest. It's, it's an ongoing effort still yeah, uh, but but um, But before I could sort of settle in the realization that I could never be him in all the ways that he was wonderful and challenging and um, and that I could never reproduce that, except by finding a way for me to um, go in a similar direction, but not with the same manifestation. Exactly was yeah. was difficult.
2: Yeah, and this again, Uchiyama Roshi describes how he, when he was a young man in his twenties, he uh, said to his teacher who is totally different uh, uh, from him. Zagawa Roshi was a very large man, a university professor with a big, booming voice. Ujiyama Roshi was a very small man with a very high-pitched voice and Mm -hmm. so forth. And he said, if I study and practice with you for 20, 25 years, do you think I could be like you? Zagawa (laughs) Roshi said, no! (laughs) And and that's where this rose blooms as a rose and a violet blooms as a violet comes from. Uh, and, and it's it's very difficult because, and going back to one of Stuart's other points, and I, th- I think this is important is how how does a person become serious, or how, and how do you ascertain whether a student is serious, mm-hmm. and so forth? Well, again, speaking in the Zen tradition, uh, you get very little explanation about what Zen is about, or what you're doing in Zen. And uh, in some of the traditions, uh, some teachers, that's, that is actually the determinant. If you can't figure it out, then you're not worth teaching. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, pretty pretty harsh from a Western yes. perspective. But that's, that's how uh, they approached it. Uh, speaking for myself, I don't think I would... I, I know I would never have cut it in Zen. Uh, Just physiologically, that wouldn't have worked. Uh, I'm not sure that I would have cut it in uh, regular Tibetan Buddhism, uh, you know, uh, for for similar reasons, certain physical limitations. And I I was faced at one point, uh, soon after I came uh, to L.A., with the realization that, you know, at a very very deep level, I I, I had to find my own way. And it was a case of just wandering out into the darkness without any idea where I was going to do. I had all of this training and all of these techniques, but it was totally up to me to figure out what the hell, I, how it, how I was going to use it and whatever. And, well, and it was a very, very difficult period of my life. I can, I can
1: at least somewhat appreciate that. But I'm, but what I'm struck by is, I don't think I've ever heard you say before that you had no... Had, oh, Regular Tibetan Buddhism used, was the phrase you yeah. used, and and so what what was it that you were apprenticing in or attempting to no, learn? I, I was.
2: I, pre- I mean, I was trained in the in, in my three traditions of Tibetan Buddhism: right, uh, Shangpa tradition, the Kamaka Jew, and a, a fair amount of Nyingma training as well. Okay, uh, but. Could I develop? Uh, I mean, one one of the key practices in both the Shankha and the Kamakaju is uh, the inner heat, mm-hmm. of which involves uh, breath pra- uh, quite demanding uh, breath uh, practices, and after being trained in these and trying to practice them for you know, many many years. Uh, I was quite quite ill and I went to a Tibetan doctor that I trusted and he took my pulse and he just looked at me and said never, never, never practice any kind of breath practice it's not right for you oh, well that's nice to know now <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, and I really, really messed myself up trying to do it mm-hmm. and so, okay I'm not able to do that so that that, that removed me from a whole Area of uh, fairly important practices in, in mm-hmm. Tibetan tradition. I imagine there are people in Tibet have similar problems because this, sure. uh, and so unfortunately, Tibetan tradition is so full of techniques that you could find other ones, but I, I had to find other ways to uh, to work energetically because that's what the breath practices are are, are are primarily for, mm. and uh, so uh, all of this. When you're trained so deeply in something, with, and you think, and this is going to be the path you follow, you realize you can't walk that path, and uh, you know even if you wanted to, you, you, right? Uh, if you, you just don't have the tool to do it. You just don't have the physiology or whatever. So th- these are very very difficult adjustments. Uh, at least I found them very difficult. I, I couldn't just say, oh, I'll do this now. <laughs> and, sure. Uh, and. At this point, even though I wouldn't want anybody else to uh, fall, take the path, I, I can see that who I am in, in terms of being able to, the understanding, whatever slight understanding I have, is very much a product of those difficulties as much as anything else. And and so I've, I've come to respect and appreciate those difficulties, even mm-hmm. though at the time they were more, you know, you talk about throwing your... Flute at the at your teacher. Uh, a little bit more than that. <laughs> <laughs> Beating the teacher with the flute. <laughs> yeah.
0: But I but I as, as we said, even with, with my spiritual teacher, I you know, it's like the reason I can articulate this is like it's so clear that the uh, uh, that that push, you know, was important, and uh, that to get to a point where one can even push oneself in that way you do to me it helps and I I, I won't go so far as to say it's absolutely necessary but practically necessary to have the modeling of having been pushed in that way so that you can recognize what is necessary in order to move attention from the inertia of the habitual
2: i I think you're right Uh, i'm reminded of something that Thich Nhat han uh, once said that the purpose of the teacher is to plant the teacher in the student or the function of the teacher is to plant the teacher in the student and uh, that has many many aspects to it but i think you're naming an important one that uh, at some point the the push or the the determination or whatever you want to call it uh, has to come from inside you can't rely on it coming from outside, and uh, sometimes it's the example of the teacher. Sometimes it's some, uh, circumstances of one's life. Gampopa, for instance, was driven to practice because his uh, he was a doctor and he was unable to save his mother, uh, his wife, uh, and uh, he was devastated. So that became his drive. But it has to come from somewhere.
0: Yeah, but even I. Uh, I, but I want to be clear that I'm. Um, there's a distinction I want to draw between the drive for practice and the <clears throat> knowing of the flavor or the taste of pushing oneself beyond that.
3: Mm.
0: Ha- the that the habit of what is familiar, and I see cases. I certainly see this with myself, and uh, Rob often uh, will give me um, feedback uh, that uh, I want to throw a shakuhachi at him about uh, when, when there's a conflation of sort of willpower, which is doing something which is different from uh, knowing the right thing to do in the moment. And one can have, one to me comes to spiritual work. Uh, you know, people who progress in spiritual work, you know, often come with a motive force, of an experience or a need or a yearning or something like that, but I distinguish that from the the more subtle knowing of the flavor of the certain kind of discomfort, uh, or in the Gurjara fork, it's called uh, you know uh, uh, conscious suffering. Um, the you know that that flavor of what that's like to know you know when. Uh, when and how to go beyond what is you know what the formatory mind you know constructs as the thing to do
2: i think uh, i think that's a very important distinction you're making and it's a subtle one the and uh, as you were speaking i was playing through my own experience i think in buddhist terms what uh how it might be expressed or how i might express it drawing on my buddhist training is that uh you allow the practice to strip you uh strip all of these parts of you away uh i I wrote a short piece on taking and sending uh which is a Buddhist uh, mahayana compassion practice and uh, i think i wrote that uh, you 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 practice this uh, and and it strips away all your expectations and and uh, all of this so and and then you allow it to strip away even the hoping and the yearning it, itself and um uh, what, where that sensibility and comes from in the individual I don't know uh, I've been playing around as you know with the idea of it connecting with uh, artistic endeavor in that um, you and your teacher particularly uh, you you know when a piece is right or when when a tone is right, mm-hmm. and uh, you're you're quite willing, figuratively speaking, to chop parts of yourself off in order to get there. If you find the right parts to chop off or let let drop away, maybe you don't have to use such a bloody image as chopping off. But let, letting parts drop away, uh, if, if if you know that if you let this part of you go then the music is going to sound right. You're probably prepared to do that. Yeah. Uh, Not everybody is. And that's where they stop.
0: Yeah, there's a... What I find with music and this, again, writing this analogy, because I think it applies very precisely to spiritual practice, where I find the resistance in music is all about uh, contractions that serve to maintain safety. So the issue around, you know, the subtleties around moving the jaw out or moving the tongue out and things like that or tightening the upper lip uh, in the plane of the shakuhachi is all about making motions which take you away from the safety of being able to reliably produce a good sound. But in that danger zone comes expression. And so taking that analogy to spiritual practice, it's it's the moments where we let go of the contractions that give us safety under a number of different dimensions, whether physical, emotional, or mental, and let those go and relax those that we can be touched. And there in that, in that moment of danger comes expression.
2: Yes. Rob, you've been silent for a while. Do you have anything to mind here?
1: Well, I'm I'm uh, appreciating um, what what Stuart said, and and I think that that's you know my own my own experience. I don't have the mu- the musical um, training, or it never it certainly never took for me to the extent that uh, that Stuart's talking about. But I'm um, delighted to sort of. I guess I'm finding, you know, t- to the point that Stuart uh, mentioned a li- just a short time ago, um, uh, the the letting go of efforting is um, in my practice not in the... My, the letting go of efforting in ways that would correspond to what you were talking about in terms of letting things go that get in the way, because so much of my practice... When I look back at it, was about expending, you know, continuing to, uh, you know, I don't know. I have the image of a, a puffer fish, you know, blowing itself bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and, you know, uh, when one muscle got tired, I would jump to another muscle to to blow out, blow up bigger, 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 and, you know, over time, I just realized just how. Counterproductive and even absurd it is to continue to do something i 'm thinking also of what you were saying before when you you got to let go of your idea about breathing exercises yeah and um, and how necessary and um, Productive it was, as as uncomfortable it is, because because it's this point that Stuart's just making about letting go of control, which is actually one of the points you bring in, um, <laughs> in the topic that we had we had the topic the general topic we had agreed to talk about for this show, which is avoiding the road to hell and letting go of control is one of those is one of those points, and it's a it's an incredibly important point, but as you were also saying earlier. Knowing when to to go back to what I started with here, when to know when to let go of efforting in a certain kind of way, and when to maintain efforting is a is a um, to create a context where you can then let go in a in a in a different way is a very it's a very tricky thing.
2: It it is a tricky thing and. But I've I, I found two metaphors uh, have become very important for me. One is the metaphor of listening. And uh, I, I, in, in Buddhism one often talks about looking, you know, looking mm, at nature yes. of mind, looking at this sure. at that. But, uh, and that's very important. But there are two other senses that we can appeal to. One is listening, or the sense of hearing. And the other is a sense of touch, of feeling, uh, and Mm -hmm. tactile sense. And I find that, for the most part, taste and smell are too ephemeral uh, to be really useful in this, but they may be for some people. But listening has become very important for me because... uh, when you you, I, you know, I, I I want to emphasize this as a metaphor because you know, what are you listening to? Very good question. Uh, but if I can just use the metaphor, you, you when you just listen to yourself, or you listen to where you are in practice, or listen to what's going on in your body, um, I find it as two things. One, when you listen, you necessarily stop thinking. Hmm. Uh, you can't think and listen at the same time. You have to be quiet inside. And uh, the second thing is that uh, you allow parts of you which may not have been able to speak for whatever reason, you know, Hmm. various blocks, inhibitions, prejudices, what have you, uh, they begin to find a voice and that can be very, very valuable. The second metaphor that I find very important is the metaphor of balance. Uh, you know, think of balance like a scales or something like that, or you mm-hmm. can think of it has, having more dimensions. But what I've found consistently is that if you open to the totality of your experience or everything that you're capable of opening to, Something in you knows where what is out of balance. May not be able to articulate it. That it, and this is where the other sense, feeling, can come in. You know, that doesn't feel quite right. Mm-hmm. And then, so then you move in the direction of balance. You never arrive at balance. It's like riding a bicycle. Mm-hmm. You never arrive at the perfect balance, but you move in the direction of balance. And I, and I talk about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, in in the piece you're referring to. And so there's a constant motion then that's coming from both the listening and the sensing of balance. And I have found that very, very reliable because it it speaks directly to how do do you know when to make an effort and how do you know when not to make an effort? And this, this listening and balance... Is, yeah. is is what I use to know. I
1: that. I, I, I like this. Uh, um, um, for the first time, you know, I'm 66. For so the first time in my life, in the last six months, I've st- I've started um, working on my body in a way. It's it's just a, you know a personal trainer at a gym sort of thing. I would just previously I would just go there and get on a machine, you know, elliptical machine or whatever it was, or I would try to just to emulate what I saw a bunch of other people do. But um, one of the things this this uh, trainer that I see once a week uh, has me doing in ways that I didn't expect to do is all kinds of stuff about balance. Oh, um, It's not, you know, I'm not just, you know, doing reps of something to build a muscle, but it's about doing something when I'm trying to maintain balance at the same time. Right. You know efforting while um, getting the information about doing that while you're while you're balanced and th- and that 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 mixture has been has at first I was like huh <laughs> and now I'm realizing this is actually a very valuable um way to operate in terms of finding things in my body that I didn't see before or didn't Experience
2: before that sounds great
1: yeah and and i think it's it has some some relevance to to those to these uh two metaphors that you mix I, I particularly like the um i mean obviously i like the balance metaphor but the listening one um i hadn't thought about the not thinking aspect of it but it's so easy for people for us speaking for myself and i think other people as well to imagine that we're going to fix ourselves or fix something by being in effort and yet how do we learn what needs doing but by paying attention and listening is is kind of the um I think it is the best uh, uh metaphor to use to understand how to how to approach that.
0: I well, I appreciate the both the sen- the using the sense analogies of listening and feeling because it's more precise than a kind of a, a vague word like intuition. Yes, where where it becomes more in the realm of uh information that's immediately accessible to us. The challenge is stopping the things that occlude access to that information, which often, most often, is uh, the activity of the formatory mind. And if you can listen, then, then that sort of subsides, if you're truly listening.
2: Yes, yes, that's exactly right. I have a couple of examples, but do you need yeah, to... Please,
0: uh, no, we got uh, about four minutes.
2: Oh, perfect. So, one time... Uh, one one example is uh, an exercise that I would often use in retreats and workshops is that I would have uh, people balance on one foot, ah. and and people would you know they'd get there and they wiggle and they shake, but most people could balance on one foot, mm-hmm. and I said you know if you can't you need to put the other foot down that's fine, just, mm-hmm. uh, and then I would have them say okay now I want you to do this. I want you to balance on one foot, but I want you to think about balancing on one foot. Mm-hmm. And and they, they immediately found that they couldn't, because the conceptual mind was just the, was just so slow. But the the kinesthetic sense in the body, which occurs without that. And then on one occasion, uh, one woman was balancing, and uh, and I threw out the question to the group: What knows how to balance? And this woman. Just immediately sat down, and she and said, "That's really scary in there," <laughs> because yeah. through through the, through that combination of things, she saw right into the emptiness, which is exactly why she I, I, I said, "But this is exactly what you came for the workshop for." And she went, "Yeah, you're right. I did." But wow, but but she'd really got got it from letting her body do this, seeing how it is, and then looking what actually knows how to do that. And and there was just nothing there in a very profound sense. So that's one way, one example of how those uh, analogies or metaphors can work. The other one, which is very touching, was uh, at a retreat I was teaching up at Mount Baldy and uh, one of the retreat people came in. Uh, he was a great a fan of Dzogchen, and uh described uh, or started to quote this verse. i think it's from long champa but i'm not a 100 sure about how the mind is tired of the vicissitudes of samsara and going on and on about the mind and, and how weary it is from all of the uh, this stuff and so forth and i listened to him i said okay i want you to repeat that and just recite the same thing, same thing but every time you come across the word mind I want to substitute you to substitute body and he didn't get in two lines into it before he was in tears because he'd been focusing on his mind and completely neglecting his body but when I had him substitute body then he started connecting with how much pain he was actually in it, was, it, was, it, it just and, 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 and it just came out so we have a tendency, particularly in Buddhism, I don't know about your tradition so much, of working too much mentally, and not, and that's why I find the analogy or the metaphor of feeling
0: very, very helpful. Got it. Well, that's a good place to take a break.
1: Let our bodies relax.
0: Indeed. <laughs> you are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me as co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we converse in the studio with Ken McLeod, founder and director of UnfetteredBind.org, a website offering resources on practical Buddhism. Ken trained in the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, translated for his teacher, and has written books that translate and comment on Tibetan texts. His books include A Trackless Path, Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and Wake Up to Your Life. We'll return to our show after a short musical
1: break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD of sacred Baroque arias, and there's one right there, called Anima Sacra, Spiritual Breath, Spiritual Soul, performed by countertenor Joachim Jozef Orlinsky, and the ensemble Il Pomodoro, directed by Maxim Emelianchev. This aria by Niccolo Fago is the voice of biblical Aaron addressing Pharaoh in Egypt.
0: We'll try that one again. Thank you. back to the mystical positivist i'm your host stuart goodnick joined by co-host dr rob schmidt director of talia meditation center and founder with myself and jim wilson of Mini rivers books and tea in sebastopol california this week on the show we converse in the studio with ken mcleod founder and director of UnfetteredMind.org, a website offering resources on practical buddhism Kin trained in the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, translated for his teacher, and has written books that translate and comment on Th- Tibetan texts. His books include A Trackless Path, Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and Wake Up to Your Life. So I wanted to start out here uh, because we we touched on um, a uh, piece uh, you wrote on your blog about uh, the, the road to hell, and I was listening to a... Um, uh,
1: and it's it's how to avoid the road. Yeah, to hell.
0: yeah, right. Avoiding the road to hell. Uh, I was listening to a podcast. I think it's a, one of the NPR ones, uh, Invisibilia, and I heard this. Um, um, the, the show was about empathy, and the thing that motivated, it in part, was a um, some dis- discussions with um, the the host had done this uh, story or put this story together on. Um, uh, uh, a guy who spent on YouTube and, you know, sort of risen in social media, but he was kind of an incel, uh, you know, the uh, involuntary celibate, uh, the disaffected males, and he moved out of that. And so there was this uh, typical invisibility story that uh, had this sympathetic look at this guy. And so she was describing how what they normally do. When they're looking at someone who might want a job with them, is they'll give him, the, they'll give them the raw audio and say, "Put a show together." So this was a young woman, uh, of the modern generation, and she put this completely different show together that was absolutely uh, not empathetic whatsoever. And this really shocked uh, the person who was putting Hannah, uh, uh Rosen, I think it is, uh, uh, that put, was putting this together because it caused her to question, you know, was she seeing this right? Was she, you know, was she looking at this guy the right way? And so as part of her exploration about this question of empathy, she talked to a uh, psychologist, to um, a German psychologist uh, that I guess has written on this. And, and apparently it's the case that uh, uh, in psychological surveys that do me- measurements of empathy, you know, year to year on people with lots of different kind of questions uh, and uh Devices that try to filter for an objective reading of empathy, the empathy measures or scores of uh, the young generation have been progressively going down and it it and you know so here's someone who's probably no doubt in her uh fifties or something like that, maybe you know, uh mid fifties who had this empathetic approach and then a one a young woman in her 20s uh you know just like empathy uh, is is only something you reserve for you know the people that you're trying to protect it's not something that you uh uh, uh trot out for your opponents because it, it, it takes uh oxygen out of the room for the fight that you need to fight you know and and i and so i was thinking about this in terms of some of the things you've pointed to about the transitions in Buddhism to, you know, away from let's say more of the esoteric and more into the uh, social um, and uh, political, and and I was also thinking about the the what this means for people's relationship to spiritual practice if there is this sort of net decrease in um, uh, empathetic either. Either capacity or interest,
1: or sure, valuing it, it, valuing it, right
0: in this generation. So I was, I was just kind of curious. I wanted to throw that out because it seemed like it was leads uh, uh, into a number of threads that we've been uh, exploring. That's very interesting.
2: It's a little disturbing. Uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> more than a little. Well, and yet, 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 <laughs> there's something that actually uh, rings true about it too. I'm
2: thinking of a dinner I had a few months ago with uh, a woman I've known for quite a long time, uh, who's a long-term practitioner, but uh, as are many people um, in the culture right now, uh, finds it difficult to regard... uh, Mitch McConnell say, with much sympathy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And she got quite angry with me when I said he's a human like any others. He has a vision for what America what he wants America to look like. And he's implementing it. Now, I'm, n- I'm no fan of Mitch McConnell. But uh, he is a human being. And so what I find disturbing in what you relate is... Uh, and i wasn 't clear whether it was in a spiritual context, but what it, so let me back up. What I find disturbing is that even in the spiritual context, uh, the idea uh, political ideas have crept into a very disturbing ex- uh, uh, extent uh, because and one of the ways i 've been trying to address this in writing is that uh, I will say that the compassion that uh, Buddhism talks about. Is a mystical compassion it 's not a practical compassion uh, and as a as a mystical compassion, it embraces all forms of life and all people necessarily uh, it doesn 't mean that you you like them or what have you, but you understand that their suffering comes from the same source, your own suffering is done it's just trying to avoid things that are inconvenient and problematic. <laughs> And uh, they're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, And that idea that... One of the central pieces of understanding that comes through practice, as far as I'm concerned, is that when you go deeply into your own experience, you come to understand how you create your own suffering. And you come to understand that the way you create your own suffering is exactly the same as the way everybody else creates their own suffering. So it's impossible, from my perspective, not to have empathy. I mean, if you see someone who is totally different from you politically or racially or however you want to put it, and they're they're having difficulty with life, you know what that's like because you have the way that you make life difficult for yourself is the same as the way they make life difficult for yourself. The details are different, but the process is identical. And if the politicization and the polarization and the, idealized, uh, I, the invasion of uh, ideologies is coming so deep that it, it is cutting across uh, people's actual spiritual practice, that that is probably one of the worst things I can imagine happening.
1: Well, I, I want to uh, um, bring this back uh, to one of the questions that you uh, bring up in this blog post that we have been referring to, as uh, it was sort of the. Uh, I guess the germ.
2: You, better, you better give people the uh, website for it. It's, it's mu- called Unfettered Mind. No, it's not on that. Oh. It's on Musings by Ken. Ah, that's right. Okay. Uh, dot blogspot. dot com. Thank you. Yeah. I just I just
1: googled it and I did not bother to look at <laughs> it to be quite honest with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So um so that's established, but but one of the points that you make uh about avoiding the road to hell, which is another way to yeah. describe what you've just uh, been articulating. Um, you say don't try to make the world a better place. Instead Address imbalances, and there's that balance word again that we talked about in the previous hour. Address imbalances in the world you experience, and I think I think this is a uh, this is a crucial arena. You can argue that, um, as, a, as I think you have, that uh, that on either side of uh, in any ideology, people are are attempting. To address imbalances, but often they're tra- they're attempting to do it at a um, at a at a level that transcends the immediate imbalances that we experience in our lives right now. Sorry. That is to say, the political realm at, at, a, at a wide level, at a widespread political realm. So I don't I don't read what I take from this. Admonition that you that you offer, don't try to make the world a better place. instead, address imbalances in the world you experience is when, as for example, um, you know a homeless person comes into our our uh, spiritual bookstore. Um, the way to deal with that situation to address this per, this is a person who's, who's experiencing imbalances in his life by By many standards, um, some customers may experience an imbalance um, by being in the presence of of the sky um, and and so often I've been looking moment by moment for the ways to create a context where he I other customers, and the store itself and the purpose for which it was created are all served in the best way possible. And it doesn't come from... Um, and wh- what I was trying to point to is it doesn't come from deciding that because you oppose homelessness, you do X, um, whatever whatever that remedy happens to be. or um, Or if you think that spiritual bookstores should be a haven where no one should find any unpleasant experience, then you should do why? Uh, similar, similar, uh, get, another you, form of remedy. You get quickly tied
2: up in knots, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I sent that newsletter out and a uh, person I knew many years ago in San Diego wrote to me, he's now head of, uh, or professor of psychiatry at University of Ottawa or somewhere, and he said, uh, does that mean we shouldn't do this and this and this? And Mm -hmm. so my response, uh, you are quite right. If we are positioned to do so, we should work to prevent HIV, disease, malaria, or the effects of poverty. Indeed, one may choose to position oneself in order to bring about change. And that makes perfect sense to me. Sure. My remarks were aimed at those who are trying to bring about change without engaging the difficult processes of either positioning or of changing the culture, and who resort to the language of rights, which is, in effect, an appeal to a higher power and and contains the implication of force. This is one of the unfortunate side effects of the extended use of computer metaphors, such as hacking, reprogramming, and algorithms, as well as the deceptive illusion of cohesion fostered by social media. Computers change their behavior as soon as you change the instructions. Humans do not. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed so, that, too. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, and There are several ideas in there, but I think they're mm-hmm. all relevant to what you're talking about. You by yourself cannot address the imbalances in our society, which put a homeless person in your bookshop. Right. And uh, so, uh, a friend of mine in Hawaii was uh, this many many years ago was uh, kicked out of her rented house um by the uh a developer who wanted to develop the whole thing into a big uh, and that so upset her that she uh ended up uh becoming a legislature in the Hawaii Assembly and passing tenants' rights the first Tenants' rights act in mm-hmm. Hawaii. Uh so when I say don't try to make the world a better place, what I'm that 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 was I should have been more precise than that. I'm really... that That is aimed at the people who want to try to create some kind of utopia. Because... And, and that's where the title for the whole piece comes from. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, right. And so people are trying to make these utopias. And utopias always almost always end in disasters. Uh, and, uh, and rather than try to make utopia... Start looking at your own life. What's out of balance here? And as you do that, you may find yourself evolving into positions where you can actually exert far greater influence. And I think that's a very, very constructive way to approach things. Does this?
1: Yeah. No. 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 That, that, that resonates. That resonates for me. Um, and yet, I, 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 but I still want to come back to, in particular, the immediate. You know, I, I think people numb themselves, often by having the habit of ignoring things that they encounter on a day that they may encounter on a daily basis and and so how do we so what i'm pointing to with with the example with the bookstore for example is i i could you know i have the the impulse to numb myself about the the all the imbalances that arise um in a situation where you know, this in this this one particular case I'm talking about, when this guy first came, started coming to our store. You know, it's it's not every day off and on. It's it's an off and on thing, although sometimes a lot of days, depending on what's going on for him, I guess. But um, uh, he would, you know, he's he's interested in the books. He's not just there to hang, just to hang out in a warm and dry place, but uh, or cool and dry place in the summer, but. He's looking at the books, and he he had the habit of sometimes um, bending books in a way that would reduce the saleability. And I had to say to him, you know, um, please don't do that. And you know, and he did refrain from doing that. He's you know he he treated he's treated the books respectfully um, since then. But I I had to I had to be able to represent the. Imbalance of the store being a place where he wasn't treating these products so that they could be sold to others if he did, decided not to buy them. That's important. Yeah. And um, um, and yet, you know, I can Im- I can imagine some people criticizing, you know, um, oh, you know, it's just a little fold in a fold in a page or something like that. You know, I, but you're running a business. I exactly, exactly. So, but I also, and then I also have to look at how how. It's like I'm paying attention to how people are interacting in the store, not just this guy, right? But plenty, you know, there are there are people who are, um, you know, who can, for whatever mechanical reasons, be attention hogs, and and um, and that has to be dealt with, in a in a in a responsible. And empathetic way, at, at least in my that's what I that's what I try to empathetic to everyone concerned, and not just the person who wants lots of lots of attention. So it's a it's this it's this. The point I'm making is it creates a demand in me to be p- constantly paying attention to the entire context as as widely as i can as my mind and heart and and uh body can encompass it
2: but, but rob isn't that just what being awake means precisely <laughs>
1: precisely and that's why it's uh and that's why it's so, and that's why it's so great but um um but it's important to remember this, this admonition that you have about don't try to make the world a better place, because when people are doing that, they're doing it usually from an idea about yeah, what the that's, world is. be. That's will the key be. point,
2: and I didn't bring that out clearly in that, yeah. is that they have an idea, and right. they're trying to impose that idea on everybody else. That's right. And in the process, they're ignoring a lot of...
0: On themselves, too, often. Uh, uh, and that's exactly and, right. and that's why there's difficulty in having dialogue because you already it's like you you already have the answer so everything that comes up is just going to be fit into the uh answer yeah.
2: exactly that's right there's no real communication there uh so uh this is life basically uh, this
1: is life but 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 through the prism of the intention to practice Well, I'm I'm going to go a little
2: further. Um, I think I've spoken about this on the show before, but uh, I I think it's worth repeating if I have. Um, Peter Slaughterdyke makes a very, for me, helpful distinction between morality and ethics. It's the only really substantial distinction between morality and ethics that I've heard. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because most of them... You know, people say ethics is about this and morals about that. And then they turn around five sentences later and they've switched the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but slaughtered eggs are quite clear. Morality, or w- w- one of the primary functions of morality, is to determine who belongs and who doesn't belong. To a group. To a group. And this can easily apply to your bookstore, you know, who yeah. belongs in the bookstore and who doesn't belong in the bookstore, right. et cetera, so, you know, yeah. um, ethics, on the other hand, is about how you choose to conduct your life, how you choose to behave in a way that supports your practice.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's very, very different. And I found that that distinction was really, really important for me. From this perspective, there is no morality in Buddhism. It's all ethics. And it makes sense.
0: It's actually, uh, uh, I love this, uh, and there's a a distinction that I like to draw, um, and I think I first got this from um, my teacher about the uh, what versus how, and morality does seem to be more about the what, and ethics Mm. is more about the how. Interesting point. And religion is more about the what. Well, religion tends to be, you know, when, when... A spiritual practice, which tends to be more concerned with the how, you know, becomes, uh, immeshed in morality than it becomes more of a religion, and has more of the the more religion in the sense that we've come to understand that term in the West, not as it's yeah yeah that's that's fair. I am uh, a little biased by my uh, upbringing in the West, and and um, but that that distinction is, I think, a really interesting one because. If you have the if you have an ethical approach to uh, uh what's happening in the world that ideally works both at the immediate level that Rob's describing and works at the uh political level where one may very reasonably make one's vocation um, a vocation of service without you know, with the kind of long-term patience that is necessary to both not burn out and to be effective. Whereas I think people with, who approach it from a moral point of view, you know, tend to be much more, you know, as you say, willing to use force. And they also, I think, tend to burn out, too. And and be ineffective. Right.
2: Uh, I had about six different thoughts running through my mind, and they've all vanished. <laughs> no, I'll, that I'll, means you were listening. I'll, exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs>
1: but I'll, but I'll, I'll bring it back to the admonition because it's funny to me when you, when you went to Slaughter Dyke. That's exactly the point in your own uh, blog post that that I was going to go to next if you hadn't. And the, the admonition you, you. Um, in, under which the Sloterdijk point between ethics and morality is subs, uh, subsumed is morality binds B-I-N-D-S and blinds B-L-I-N-D-S and and I, I think that's a really but
2: I, but I want I, you to talk I, more I, about the I, blinds
1: I, part as well as the binds okay. part.
2: I, I need to give credit where credit is due Okay, uh, that a formulation of morality comes from Jonathan Haidt in The Righteous Mind which right. is a book that I Strongly recommend anybody's listening to this uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: show uh, read because it it uh, does a great deal to clarify the uh, confusion that we're experiencing in the society. Uh, so, what's your question again? My question is: I want you to
1: talk more about the distinction between morality that binds and morality that blinds. Even though they do, they're they're intermingled. Uh, morality.
2: Well, morality does both. Yes, uh, it isn't that there's one morality which binds. One no, no, morality. yeah. I'm uh, sorry yeah, if I miss, yeah, yeah, uh, didn't uh, clearly they, state they, that. You know, so, morality. Uh, I mean, even thieves have their own morality. Sure. If you behave a certain way, then you're part of uh, you're part of the group. Part of the group, uh, and uh, politicians have theirs, and businessmen have theirs, and teachers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, and families have theirs, and if you behave a certain way, you belong. So, what there there's certain ways of behaving, certain ways of speaking, and so forth, uh, understandings, and if you. Uh, uh, do those things, then you are recognized as being part of the group. Yes. Okay? And you form bonds with each other. Mm-hmm. And that as you form bonds, you also form an identity. I am this, I am that. And the sense of cohesion and identity that emerges out of that, which is, you know, group culture, etc., mm-hmm. inevitably and necessarily. Causes you to see the behavior of other people and other groups as different, mm-hmm. so it binds you together, but it also blinds you to the humanity of people who do things differently. That that makes
1: that makes sense, but I'm also thinking about the the two ways um, to think about the word bind. So bind oh. is connection. But it's also um, the opposite, or, or the opposite of freedom.
2: Yes, I see what you mean. Uh, well, you do find that. I mean, if you're going to join and be part of a group, then you're going to accept that way of freedom, and it may be restrictive sure. to you. And, that, and 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 that's part of it. Now. I remember when I was skiing once with a friend, he was expressing his uh, discomfort or uh, trying to figure out what to do because an old friend of his was coming to town. Mm-hmm. And he felt obliged to uh, spend some time with him, even mm-hmm. though he hadn't seen him for a long time. And uh, But he kind of resented the obligation. I think this is exactly what you're talking about—the bind and the bind. Right. And uh, and he kept asking me, you know, am I obliged to see him? Uh, Is this a moral moral issue? How do I sort this out? And as we rode up on the ski lift together, I said to him, Look, this isn't about any moral value out there. This is about you deciding what it means to be a friend yourself. Nice. You know, I like that formulation. And uh, and when you're clear about that, then you will know whether you spend time with them or not. But it depends on what it, what it means to you to be a friend. Yeah. I'm going to
1: give another example. Um, when I was late teens, early 20s, I was struggling with um, my sexual identity. Mm-hmm. And um, so... I, d- I decided that the best course for me was to uh, adopt the the word gay. Okay. So okay, so I'm a gay man. Right? My teacher was happy to to use that to use that word, but he also um you know at uh, at various points would um say, "Well, you understand that of course there may be a point where that word there, you may you may reach a place where that word actually prevents you from having a relationship in a in a kind of way that I'm not talking about sexual relationship I'm just talking about being able to be hang out with with someone it may bind you in the sense of preventing you from actually expressing something that that your um, your ethical uh, practice. Um, commitment would enjoin you to do, and that 's a really s- crucial distinction it seems to me so i 've been happy over the years to to use that word um because it's a it 's a useful you know uh, uh, label at many times but it's not it 's not one that to which i I give my my undying adherence, because it's not always useful.
2: It seems to me that you're talking about identity here. Yes. And the difference between you, uh, the pragmatic use of a label mm-hmm. and the adoption of an identity. Right. And I, I think that's a very important distinction. A lot, for, for a lot of people today, it seems that identity is is very important. Um, in a way i don 't recall it as being so important when I was growing up
1: well, I think for certain for certain newly especially some newly emerging groups uh, i 'm thinking transgender stuff you know uh, nowadays and and it, it, um, you know it 's taken me
2: by surprise well i 'm not uh, there 's certainly that and I, I can the struggles of people in in those in those populations um, i think they're gaining a level of recognition and um, place in the world that they haven't been able Absol- to oh oh absolutely yeah. I'm, not, I'm, but, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not i'm not i I'm not, I'm, pretty- I'm not really talking about that i'm talking about i um, just very straightforward uh i'm a democrat i'm a republican and there's there's uh, you know yeah. which applies to a far larger number of people sure. but here If I'm, uh, you have this uh, rhinos, Republican in name only, Mm -hmm. that if you behave a certain way, you can't be regarded as a Republican. Hmm. I mean, we actually now have dinos. Oh, really? Yeah, Democrats (laughs) in name.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and
2: what this represents to me is the. uh, progressive uh, the encroachment of ideology in into people 's thinking and 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 the way they they conceive of themselves mm-hmm. and this binds people in the sense that you 're using the term bind mm-hmm. in very very unfortunate ways because it 's just locking down any possibility of flexibility in-
1: well y- yeah so so the binding that, that you were f- Thinking of when you when you wrote the blog about connecting people yeah, into that's, that's into a Jonathan. shared in, right into a shared um, identity uh, shared identity or shared group uh, you know group or, or what right. I mean um, um, I I guess the I mean, conclusion the, the, we're coming the, the, to is that is that is that it also if you take it too to, far exactly. Um, then you get this other feature. So, this, this. so
0: I, w- I want to, you know, bring this back uh, to the conversation of uh, contemporary spiritual practice, and we can locate it with contemporary uh, Buddhism since we kind of opened the show with that. So, would you say then that you see a uh, the the red flags of um, uh, morality? Sort of arising in the in the community that a, a more moralistic approach, as opposed to an ethical approach, is uh, seeming to get more um, currency.
2: This is what I've been hearing from many many different quarters, uh, and and the degree to which it is operating is really quite quite alarming. There are many people who feel that you cannot possibly practice Buddhism unless you are uh, left wing politically. And this is just nonsense, of course, uh, on, on many many levels. Uh, but uh, and that you can't you can't be a Buddhist unless you are uh, le- left wing. And these, this idea has taken over a, a number of centers to the point that I, I'm I'm I've started to say that uh, whereas people in the 90s and early 2000s. Would characterize themselves as being spiritual but not religious. Now it seems that the centers, uh, by and large, are becoming religious but not spiritual.
1: Mm. That's 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 um, a nice encapsulation. Where where I, I mean, I'm I'm in some ways looking at Buddhism from from the outside, but I have a pretty deep familiarity with uh, and know and interact with a lot of dear Buddhist friends, etc and and i certainly have seen not at all um practitioners and teachers but there are some out there who seem to i think create for example a, a uh, an arena of sexual morality as opposed to an ethical uh uh approach um, i don't want to name names obviously but but um but i've been dismayed to see it because um, it seems to me it it is binding in the in the worst sense of that word as we were using it earlier.
2: Yeah, and, and the issues of um, it's now accepted uh, by and large that um, if you are in a position of power, it doesn't matter what happens in a situation; you are at fault. <laughs> if uh, anything bad happens, you mean, at all, yeah, or regrettable, where, where I, or even
1: reported to be regrettable.
2: Yeah, uh, where I've had some of my female students say when they were at university, uh, they wanted to sleep with their professors, and their poor professors didn't stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> they knew exactly what they were doing, and they knew who the, where the power lay. It was with them, not with the professors. And well, so, I mean, you get... And so, even bringing this up is probably going to create a firestorm on your uh, things. But the 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 main problem that I see is that the thinking has become so rigid about these matters mm-hmm. that um, the humanity uh, uh, the hu- humanity of the people involved is. A, a, I mean, to use your word people have been numb to it or it's being ignored or, 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 or what have you the uh, and uh, I I'm, I find it very very difficult uh, because I know what it's like to be excluded uh, and 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 to be uh, judged and it's um, it's not pleasant and I'm sure you know it uh, yourself Uh and and so why people who are uh, practicing spiritually are are engaging in such judgmental behaviors really uh, puzzles me
0: well and i guess what i find difficult to completely comprehend is that a, the technology of spiritual practice is intended to lessen that kind of binding and to free free one from that kind of uh, uh, weight of the the predetermined or the the prejudged, and,
2: and and particularly in Buddhism to free one from the burden of identity.
0: Right, but but I, I find, I mean, at one time we raised chickens in our backyard, and uh, uh, we had too many at one point, and you know when. You watch how chickens treat each other, and <laughs> and you know when one starts to show weakness, and the you know like uh, the term hen pecked yes. com- comes from uh, the uh, yeah, dump, dominant hens will start to peck at and uh, sort of accelerate the demise of uh, the weaker one. And yeah. every time I see these controversies come up, I, I just I, I that the visceral impression of that that kind of um, warm-blooded reptilian mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that avian mode comes comes to the fore that you know people take there's a certain joy of of having the righteous indignation and uh you know being uh, you know having no compromise about the uh the moral failings of uh, uh people in the the spiritual realm and it seems like that all just becomes you know it just becomes another uh, excuse for the sure. ordinary behavior
2: so many years ago, I read Brian Victoria's book on Zen at War, and in which he described how many of the leading Zen and Pure Land teachers uh, were very, very enthusiastic supporters of the, the Japanese J- war, war right. effort yeah. and uh, and, apolo- and apologists also, and uh, the, imp- the whole imperial ideology, really. Exactly, and. That uh, and he was deeply bothered by it. And I, uh, the, the question that led to me, that uh, it led me to engage, is what uh, what enables you to see the suffering that is generated by your own culture, or to see through the con- uh, another way to say it, what enables you to see through the conditioning of your own culture, so you can see what is actually happening. And after a lot of thought and reflection, uh, I, I came to realize it's not insight. It's compassion. Hmm. Because compassion puts you in touch with the destructiveness of suffering wherever it comes. And that. And, and compassion has been a very, very important theme in my own spiritual practice. I mean, two of the books that you cited. Are about compassion practice. Uh, and <clears throat> what I find um, most dismaying and, and most troubling is just what you were saying, uh, Stuart, that this understanding of compassion, in which, you know, it doesn't matter what ideology or what belief system you approach, if you're practicing spiritually, you're going to develop a compassion which allows you to see pain and suffering wherever it occurs and that seems to be very very important I, can, I mean i can't imagine spiritual practice without that quality yeah. but you know that may be just me but that, and that certainly reflects my training
0: well i think that and the challenge is uh when when there, when that starts to fall away or where the when the focus is off of that then how does one bring it back and that's.
2: Well, there's the Book of Leadership and Strategy, which is a, a Taoist, a collection of Taoist writings or sayings. And whenever anybody comes up with that question, I'm always reminded of the opening paragraph, which says, if I get it correctly, When a society is ordered, a fool by himself cannot bring it to ruin. When a society is chaotic, a sage by himself cannot bring it to order.
1: Well, I'm going to uh, quote you um, from, your, from your blog post to sort oh, of uh, put, a, put a cap on this. If you have to use force or coercion, the results you want to achieve are not possible at this time. And I think that, that goes for the realm that you've just been discussing, but it goes for the personal realm, too. And that's actually a, an important way to achieve some of the... to, to recognize some of the distinctions that I, are so I,
2: important. You're quite right, and it does apply at the personal level. Because yeah. if you try to force change... In, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier, that when you change instructions in the computer, the computer behaves differently immediately. But in a person... It takes time for mind and body to attune to the changes and and the understandings, etc., and for change, uh, change to come about. And I know from my own experience how thoroughly you can break yourself by trying to force change. In other words, you need to apply compassion to yourself as well as
1: to others in a certain sense.
2: Yeah, I don't like to use the word compassion there. Back. I understand. This, this goes back to what we were discussing in the first part. Listening of the show. and feeling, listening and feeling, and a okay. sense of balance, and, rec- and, and, and recognize that you're doing just by making a quiet, persistent effort. You may be doing everything that you can. Yeah. Fair uh, and you pray to get through difficult situations without doing anything badly.
3: <laughs> well,
0: well, that's probably yeah. a, uh, a good, a place good to point be. to uh, leave it, because um, <laughs> if, if this were uh, Joe Rogan, we could go on easily for another hour. But unfortunately, uh, we we have some boundaries on our time.
1: Indeed. But uh, we do want to thank you so much for this uh, conversation that has gone in places that I didn't expect it to go, which is always fun. Right. Well,
2: I, I always enjoy getting together with both of you because you, uh, we, we just have stimulating conversations. Yeah. And I hope they're beneficial to the people who listen to them. I, I hope do so, so, too.
0: I, do, I certainly, when we, when we uh, enjoy them, they, we typically get good uh, feedback.
2: Oh,
0: good. You are listening, or you've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Uh, This week on the show, co-host Rob Schmidt and I have been speaking in the studio with Ken McLeod, founder and director of unfetteredmind.org, a website offering resources on practical Buddhism. Ken trained in the Tibetan Buddha Dharma, translated for his teacher, and has written books that translate and comment on Tibetan texts. His books include A Trackless Path, Reflections on Silver River, An Arrow to the Heart, and Wake Up to Your Life.
1: Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature an encore show yet to be determined. Tune in for that show on Saturday, May 18th from 4 to 6 p.m. In the Thursdays at Many Rivers, uh, excuse me, upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, the Thursdays at Many Rivers event on May 16th, Thursday, May 16th, will be Taoism, Psychotherapy, and Our Human Soul. That's with Raymond Bart Vespe, Ph.D., former CIIS professor, The program will present the eight principal Chinese Taoist experiential concepts of Tao, De, Qi, Yin Yang, Wu Wei, Zuzhan, Wan Wu, and Tao Zhen, and don't rely on any of my pronunciations there. Selected uh, passages and tales will be read from the presenter's original renditions of Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, Chang Tzu's... Ni Pian and Li Tzu's Xing Sheng, along with their psychotherapeutic and soul-journeying commentaries. Psychotherapy is considered as quote, an, as, quote, attending the soul, unquote, and as an attending relationship process. So-called psychotherapists are, quote, wise, true, and real attenders, unquote, and so-called patients are human beings. The Tao Te Ching in particular is regarded as being composed of 81 spirit Soul passages that we humans may make in the ensouling process of our soul work, soul making and soul journeying throughout the course and cycle of our lives. A handout will be provided and some time will be made for attenders to ask questions or make comments about the integration of Chinese Taoist principles, Western psychotherapy psychotherapy processes and spiritual practices as transformative ways of being and living human. Raymond Bart Vesby, Ph.D., has been a licensed counselor since 1972. He was an associate professor in the Integral Counseling Psychology Program of CIIS, where he taught courses in Eastern Sutras and Taoist psychotherapy. He directed the Integral Counseling Center of CIIS and was the clinical director of the Marin Treatment Center. He's the long-standing student of Chinese Taoist philosophy, practitioner of Tai Chi Chuan, and has worked with Taoist masters Alan Watts, Al Huang, and Jia Fu
0: Feng. And on Thursday, May 23rd, at Many Rivers Books and Tea, We present Shamanism, Virtues and Challenges with Professor and Shaman Antonio Ramirez Hernandez. Dr. Antonio Ramirez started learning about shamanism in 1982 when he started to have experiences that were difficult to understand with rational logic. He started to seek guidance until he found the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. He studied with Michael Harner after taking several workshops, including the three-year program in Advanced Shamanism. Antonio eventually found medicine person Lauren Smith from the native California Pomo tribe in Sonoma County. He became a student, and Lauren expanded Antonio's views about shamanism. The relationship lasted until Lauren's death in January 2019. Part of Antonio's training has included the study of plant medicine in the Amazon, in the uh, Mazatec Mountains, and with Huichel Healers. He is currently writing two books, one about learning from Lauren Smith and the other called Contemporary Shamanism. Antonio Ramirez Hernandez holds a master's degree in psychology with a concentration in drama therapy and a doctoral degree in clinical psychology, both from CIIS. Antonio is nationally and internationally recognized for creating a methodology for working with Latino men to teach them how to stop violence uh, to their partners. His interests include gender studies, especially concerning masculine identities, the psychological impacts of culture on individuals and families in transpersonal psychology, including shamanic healing practices. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist podcast of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send feedback and comments to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.
1: We leave you with music from a CD of sacred Baroque arias called Anime Sacra, performed by countertenor, counter-tenor Jake, Jakob Josef Orlinsky and the ensemble Il Pomodoro, directed by Maxim Emelianchev. This aria, by Johann Adolf Hasse, is the voice of St. Peter addressing Christ on the cross. Enjoy.